Shut up and sit down. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the KF Podcast. We have a special edition here today. Um, I want to say thank you for joining us. If you just found us on the interwebs, check us out at kfpodcast.com, at the KF Podcast, all your social media needs. Um, also, check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes. Um, we're on all your favorite podcasting apps. Uh, so I'm going to pass it over here to Dawn. We'll take it from here. All right. Thank you, Ken. So a few weeks ago, we did an interview with uh, Natasha Coppola Shalom, um, which was really great. We talked about the new series, Chrome, coming out. And we are very fortunate and lucky today to have the director of Chrome, uh, award-winning producer and director, Timothy Hines. Woo. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tim is directing Chrome. Chrome is streaming on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, Netflix, and most major platforms starting Saturday, May 30th. Um, do we have a at time or anything or just saturday so anytime saturday well honestly it's uh like 3 a.m your 3 time <laughs> wake up at 3 a.m <laughs> online Sorry. start watching it at 3 a.m that's what we need you to do um other things he's known for best known for his ad- adaptation of the h.e wells novel war of the world war of the world right. easy for you to uh, say founded the um independent production company pen dragon pictures some of your films you're known for, 10 Days in a Madhouse, Charlie Boy, House the Rising, and A Midsummer's Night Dream. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here today, Tim. It's great to thank have you. Thank um, you. So first of all, you know, we asked Natasha this, how are you holding up during all this craziness that's going on in the world? Well, um, for, for us, for me and my family, uh, unfortunately, and this is going to sound like, because I, I tend to be a bit on this spectrum, I mean, I'm actually sort of diagnosed with that, so I, you know, a little bit, uh, but I kind of tend to be this person who sort of can sort of see things in the tea leaves. And when there was only 43 cases in Wuhan, I turned to Susan and said, this is going to be a world pandemic. Mm-hmm. And of course, her response was quite typically, as people do with me, is you're completely crazy. Nobody's saying that. What are you talking about? <laughs> and I just saw how they were handling it. Plus, um, as a student of history, my my uh, field of interest, this is going to just sound so totally crazy, uh, is uh, world pandemics. Oh, okay. So I saw the behavior patterns forming, and I saw the way people weren't doing things at the, at the time, and I was trying to get her to quarantine before anybody else was quarantining, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, we missed it. And uh, in early March, we got sore throats. Oh, wow. And then uh, we started to develop uh, mucus that was like rubber cement. Oh, and then I can only share with you that uh, my family and I uh, suffered from the coronavirus for eight weeks. Oh, wow. Eight yeah. weeks. And I can tell you that um, I hear stories, uh, not of anybody I've talked to, but I hear stories of people who had it, that it was kind of like a mild flu or a cold or whatever. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we weren't graced with that. We were given what they considered moderate which meant that uh, every single day that we had the coronavirus, more than one doctor called us. Uh, we had to call aid cars multiple times uh, to decide whether or not to go in. And of course, the, 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 the paramedics were saying like, you don't wanna go there. You don't wanna go there right now. There's people in tents with masks and it's chaos. And if you can just keep breathing, like the fact that you're standing up 
and that you can even talk to us right now. We'd rather not take you in, even though, yes, you obviously have coronavirus. Wow. So we got an uh, early diagnosis with it. And um, the only thing I can, I want to, you know, if I were to tell people about it, this is not the flu. <laughs> this, is, this is like if you had the flu, and then you got the flu, and then you got another flu, and then you got a head cold all at the same time. Yeah. And for us, it was um, about every about every couple of days, our bodies were telling us that we were going to die. Wow. And that you just go through, and then even through within, you, you have a few hours where you start to feel completely normal, and then it would tank again. And, uh, and of course, the scariest thing is um, the, the breathing. People don't really understand. We've never been through this, but imagine if you're sitting in a chair, and randomly every few minutes, somebody put a plastic bag over your head. And you can't breathe for about 30 seconds. And then they take it off and you never know when it's going to come off. Hmm. Now do that for eight weeks. Yeah. Eight weeks around wow. the clock. Wow. And no sleep. So our sleeping got to being like uh, going to bed at eight o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, getting up at, uh, at six or seven in the evening just because the hours didn't mean anything when you're struggling like that. Yeah. And uh, so, and, and, and I'm going to just share with the public. I don't really normally tell people this, but I've kind of got to a point where I think it's going to become obvious anyway that... Uh, uh, I was diagnosed uh, last year with uh, muscular dystrophy. So I have uh, neurological issues already where I had breathing troubles. And then last July, I thought I had a small cold. And within 24 hours, I was paralyzed for one month. I couldn't move my arms and legs. Oh, my God. And hmm. um, so, you know, amazingly, um, you, you grow as a person. You either, you're either going to go insane or you're going to um, – you're going to – you know, you're going to grow through it. And in my case, basically both happened several times, <laughs> you know, because how do you deal with that? How do you deal right. with that? And, and I had to come to, I had to go through mental processes to, you know, to, to and, and my life changed. I, I, I basically, what I thought was, you know, that became book one. Yeah. And now I'm into book two, but you know, I'm not complaining about it. I mean, sometimes I'll go to grab my mouse and instead of it going where I want it to go, it'll like, I'll throw it through a window. No kidding. It'll just, and to me, I mean, come on guys, that's funny, right? It's like, I want, I want it to be tragic, but it's like, I, I go arm. I never told you to do that. What are you doing? Get back in line. And, and, and when I walk now, sometimes my leg won't go where I want it to go. Yeah. And I've never had a good sense of rhythm. So now I tell everybody, hey, I got a, a jazz sachet. You know, I got this kind of like this cool sort of, this kind of rhythmic walk, that thing that happens before. But so, so they're believing that I've had my first big exacerbation with muscular dystrophy and that I may not have it again for another five years. Yeah. So that's the good news is I might have a window for a few years of like getting my act together and, yeah. and, and we don't know how severe it'll be because it's, you know, it's different with each, per, each, each person who has it. But right. coronavirus, anybody who's making fun of this, sure, you might be the one that gets the, the mild cold version. Right. And, you, can, and you, you cannot know based on your health because I, even though I'm mature, yeah. I rode a bike seven miles a day before, before coronavirus. Mm -hmm. and, and now if I can walk around the block and make it back home, I'm in a good space. So you, 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 you will only know, you'll find out what your immune system is like once you get it. And God forbid, I wish it on no human being. Well, there's two. There's two people on earth I wish it on. But other than, <laughs> other than those two, which I'm not going to on. <laughs> I'm not naming them. I'm not naming them. But, but so, so that's it for us. And, uh, you know, and of course, we're dealing with the same thing everybody else is, you know, the, the lockdown is just, you yeah. know, we're, 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 there's before times. 
and and we're slowly going to have to figure all of this out and especially for us in the movie industry here i am in in california and in, in hollywood mm. and four million people are out of work there is no production i mean yeah. people mm -hmm. don't realize it by the for the first time in your guy's lifetime there's no movies being made right now there's no television series being made there's no you know that's why you're seeing like these tonight show hosts sitting in their attic fighting bees and stuff because they're just like us there's there, what crew can they get to get together mm -hmm. right that that might not accidentally you know cause so so we are working out something where i'm going to be shooting something in september uh of the, with natasha it's her next feature okay and uh uh but well we, we can talk about that but I, I've, I've got we got you know procedures and procedures and procedures in place to how to protect ourselves we're going to have to be um, nose swabbed which is like a scrub brush if you have had it i don't know if you guys any of you have had it no luckily no it's, luckily it's no. not fun it's not it's not like putting a little cotton swab up your nose it's like taking a brillo pad and cramming it up into your brain a bunch of times in each side so even yeah. that itself is like not thanks <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna get out to this location and we're gonna quarantine and then we're going to do like over 48 hours, we'll do two COVID tests. And if everybody within two weeks doesn't show symptoms and, and turns out to be clean, then we're going to social distance the entire cast and crew because we're shooting a, a, a film in the forest. Oh, okay. And then uh, when we, and then every two weeks, we're going to go through that same process again to make sure everybody's protected. So uh, hey, hopefully we can- what you have to do and, and how you, it's good that you're coming up with these ways of still the work and, and to make things happen. You know, it's good. Well, that's been me. I, I tend to be the, you know, uh, to, to take a sidestep to, I know we're going to talk about Chrome, but, you know, one of the characters in, uh, in the story of War of the Worlds, there's a character named the Artilleryman. And he's this person that often the fans of this guy who sort of went insane, who had these big delusional visions of how he was going to change the world and try and keep it the way it was before, and they would rebuild it the same. But what I saw out of the character was when London fell and the Martians were chasing everybody and everybody went running that way, he goes, hey, wait a minute. There's a bunch of empty houses here and there's some backgammon games and some whiskey lying around. <laughs> and he was the guy who just sort of said, you know, maybe I won't be chased down and become food. And he ate all the marbled beef in the houses and hung out. Mm. And so I'm kind of saying to myself, well, yeah, sure. He might've had to do something to occupy his brain, but was he the crazy one? He was the one not eaten by the Martians. He was the one not eaten, you know, killed by heat rays. Right. And and every one of his every one of his uh, regiment was wiped out, a hundred percent. So uh, how crazy was he that he was the guy who kind of held back and went, ah, maybe not. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know. So so for me, I've always sort of looked at that when the giants are battling. Maybe sometimes they're preoccupied, and for me, as a smaller as an independent, I can go wow, they're dropping food everywhere and they're leaving giant gates open and doors open as they're all smashing into each other. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Wow, that's crazy. Well, we're, stuff. We're, <laughs> you're feeling better and, and you look good. And, yeah, and, uh, thank you. And sorry you had to go through all that. That is, uh, that is unbelievable. Thank you for sharing that though. That's a, that's a really realistic view and story of, of what it's like. So that's- There's you know, no politics in that. It just, it's just, it's purely, yeah. you know, you're we're talking right back, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. virus you know that's it yeah well i know it myself i'm a diabetic and i'm an asthmatic so i was really careful with myself to try to make sure i didn't get it because we like to joke around here that everything puts me in the hospital <laughs> well there, there you go it's <laughs> true <laughs> the, the the diabetic the diabetic side yes they're starting to discover that the asthmatic side not so much yeah that it actually turns out that it it may be more of a blood disease 
and that that's just the lungs are the areas that are the most affected from it. So, yeah. So, anyway, moving forward to happiness. <laughs> Let's not jump into Chrome then. You know, yes. let's talk about uh, this exciting project, this exciting show coming out this week. Let's get into it, Ron. Uh, what can you tell us about the uh, the series from the director's point of view? Well. Um, uh, you know, let's get out of the darkness, right? So back in the early 90s, when I was accidentally diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's uh, non lymphoma and told I had like three to four months to live. <laughs> How's that for a start point? And, Great start and, point. Yeah, and they, and I mean, it was real. They, they thought I had lymphoma, which of course eventually turned out to be muscular dystrophy. And uh, I had certain symptoms that were consistent with and back then you know and i'm not going to say that i'm a thousand years old but this is pre-internet so medicine was more a lot more blood tests and anecdotal sometimes mm. and before they figured it out so i sat down and i realized you know i always wanted to do a big science fiction film and i was never going to get the chance to do it i thought i wasn't going to live so i said well at least i'll write the screenplay for one and because i didn't think it was ever going to get made I just wrote endless budget, like Lord of the Rings times three, you know, like all of the Lord of Rings movies together. Mm -hmm. I just wrote this, I don't care. And like, and then giant spaceships come in and then a building falls down on people. And then, you know, and a, and a thousand robots come out of their, out of their workplaces. And, you know, and I, I, it was completely insane. So then, ha ha, a month later, they go, well, we don't know what you have but you're not dying of lymphoma. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. I mean, it was great, of course. It was super yeah. great, but yeah, now, yeah. now I, and so then I said, well, now I've got this script and everybody liked the script. And, and they, they, they loved the, the story concept that I did, which was, and this is back, we're talking about Blade Runner had, had just come out, was the only film that was robots at all. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. and, and I wanted to do a, a, a story, you know, entirely where, let's say, robots are the good guys, where the human race sort of fill into a lockstep kind of Nazi world where all the corporations merged into one corporation that I call Jasomnus, which actually means sleeping earth, you know, from the Latin. Okay. And, and, uh, and the robots are the only ones that behave humanly. And so I wanted the robots to not always be humanoid looking but to have you recognize them by their character and their characteristics and then see how the humans behave and not recognize them or recognize them in that way that we don't like to see humans behave. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was the, the, the basis for it. So I, I took this script and uh, at the time I had Hollywood contacts and I, I got it to Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment. James Cameron was, you know, he had just done the Terminator. So he was still like, I don't want to say rinky dink, but he was still this little company. Mm -hmm. And uh, Disney and all of these people virtually at the uh, Destination uh, Films, because I, I'm not necessarily proud of this, or maybe I am proud of it, but I actually helped Miramax in the very beginning get their foothold. Oh, okay. And uh, that's, uh, you know, the Weinstein Company. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, um, and so every single person looked at it and they said, wow, this is amazing, but this is 10 movies. This mm -hmm. is way too big. This is like, nobody's ever going to do this film. Uh, so, so it became like, literally, I just kept getting rejections from, this is a $200 million film with a $100 million post-production budget. <laughs> and so I don't know what to do with that. And eventually after like a year of exhaustion of running it around, I mean, I have enough rejections that I could wallpaper my walls with them from Spielberg's, you know, all the, all the wonderful people out there to, to saying how much they loved it, but no way, not filmable. And uh, so then um, flash forward to 2000. And Susan and I, uh, Susan uh, Goforth, my producer, 
she was one of what they call the first four buildings people from Microsoft. Oh. And uh, she was never on the high up level. She was, you know, assistant and she was uh, a person who um, put, put uh, physically put facilities together. Like if they like did a trade show, she would be the ones that would rent the Trinitron screen and rent the chairs and make sure that all the rooms were booked and that kind of stuff. She was that, that kind of line producer. And uh, so she brought on some of her Microsoft friends and uh, we were just actually hanging around. I'd done this little tiny film called Bug Wars, which was, uh, I think the tagline I had was, uh, two women, one planet, 10 million bugs. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, the, after, after a quantum war, these two women that are the last two survivors fight a race of bugs trying to take over the earth. And, and it was it was very uh, cheesy little film, and if you can find a VHS of it, please burn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, so, watch it. I definitely oh, want to watch it. I know it. you yeah. guys are going to track it down. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, but anyway, did the, the 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 Microsoft guys all came to my screening, and they were they had been out partying, so they were all drunk. And they came in and they had just the greatest time. They were just like <laughs> laughing and having such a great time. And so we actually signed a contract to do uh, to do War of the Worlds on the back of one of the programs for the film. Oh, okay. We did like an initial, just very cool hand, you know, it was all drunkenly handwritten with like <laughs> a couple of hearts on it or something like that. <laughs> nice. And, uh, and so then uh, we set out and the, these guys were, they were serious and, and, and really they meant business. And so we were in a very short period of time able to pull together $42 million to do this film. Wow. Excellent. And Universal was going to be our distributor. Um, we got uh, Charlize Theron um, and uh, uh, Michael Caine and uh, Matthew McConaughey was in, in the cast of a updated version, mind you, of War of the Worlds, because everywhere I went, people tried to talk me out of doing a period version. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we went, there's a small town south of Seattle called Tacoma, Washington. Mm -hmm. And they were, the University of Washington had just, Washington had just literally bought uh, an entire street of buildings and they were going to tear down this entire street so the city gave us and with the university of washington gave us the complete opportunity to we could trash any of these buildings we had an entire city block to film on wow oh that's awesome <laughs> uh, no, so we got it all set up and we had it was amazing the stuff that we had done that in pre-production and um uh we had what are called thumpers where you take cars and you you know like the what they do the jumpy cars with uh hydraulics and we had all yeah. those set, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that we had them all on radio controls so that when a, foot, a walking machine foot would come down, the cars would go boom, <laughs> all together on the whole block. And, um, and I took over a, um, a closed boys middle school, became our production headquarters. And we used the gymnasium as our primary soundstage and all the classrooms became hair, makeup, and the principal's office became my producer's office, director's <laughs> office. It was very cool. It was weird too, you know, just like running a school, but it was like, you know, this film going on. Hmm. And uh, and two days, our production start point was September 13th, 2001. Oh, wow. So two days before we were about to begin principal photography, World Trade Center. Wow. Depression. Nobody wanted to see any movie on earth with buildings falling and planes falling out of mm. the sky, which is all throughout yeah. my script. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, everyone was devastated. We didn't know what to do. And uh, uh, Susan and I, we sat down and we said, you know, well, we're going to lose our shirts. And, and we went from $42 million down to $8 million worth of investors in just two weeks. Wow. So, 
and we were like okay we're hemorrhaging out like everybody we're gonna have to start over again and then we just kind of got this crazy idea late at night one night you know all jacked up on coffee or whatever and said why don't we try and just do a look you know there's what we're doing here and we, we just discovered that there was a city long closed brewery that had been built in the 1800s and it, it was built upon all the way up until the 1980s and then closed Mm -hmm. So it had architecture going all the way back to 18, you know, 1893, mm -hmm. all the way up to the 1980s and was, you know, interconnected tunnels and catwalks and everything. You could go an entire city block without touching the ground. Mm -hmm. And so we said, maybe we could make a deal with the guy who owns that place or whoever owns that and put that together and, and, and do the script Chrome. All right. Yeah. So that's, that's how we started. And, and wow. the, the cool thing was we talked to the unions, IATSE. Everybody was out of work and we said, look, here's our crazy plan. And I, I can't really remember it and I kind of almost don't want to say it because I don't want to get it wrong. But <laughs> we were kind of very, um, you know, socialist in this way and that everybody got paid the same rate. Whether you were a, a, whether you were a, um, a production assistant or a stunt player or the principal actor or all of the producers or the, mm -hmm. the makeup artists or everybody was all paid the exact same rate. Mm, wow. And... I mean, I know that that's not real, the real world, but for us, it took money off the table as that person's getting $200 a week more than me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we had stunt players because this is before green screens, mind you, not really, they were just coming in mm -hmm. and green screens were just starting to come in, but we still had stunt players that were doing high falls off of airbags that would normally get paid $5,000 to do that. And they were working for, you know, a few hundred dollars a week. Wow. And so we had pyrotechnicians that would normally charge you by the, the explosion. Mm -hmm. And we were doing like 20 to 30 to 50 explosions a day with squibs all <laughs> over people's bodies. And, and our guns actually had squibs on the end. So whenever we did something where we pointed a gun and shot at somebody, we wired their bodies oh, and wow. exploded, oh. exploded their shirts. And so, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, our customers, they were, everybody just, it was like a, a magical utopian time. And now, you know, movies are done today, even big Hollywood films, they're done in like eight to 10 weeks. Yeah. And because nothing else was going on and we had no place else to be, we shot Chrome over 20 weeks, 20 oh. weeks of filming. And our days were like wow. 16, 18 hour days, but not because we were all like driving everybody like slave drivers. Nobody wanted to leave. Mm -hmm. Everybody was just having so much fun playing robots with robot costumes <laughs> and, and, and my iron guards, which were, you know, I sort of named after the Soviet Union's iron guards. Mm -hmm. And they were the, they were the uh, sort of the police Nazis of the robots that would track down and, uh, and reclaim uh, escaped robots. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Very film. cool. Yeah. So, I, I mean, maybe that's all too much information to, to start off with, but that. But oh, no, yeah. Oh, my uh, God. It was so much fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. And, and, and we had... Uh, but here's the weirdest, weirdest thing. Okay, so the brewery turned out to be owned by this eccentric millionaire named Lester who lived there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was like the Phantom of the Opera. He was 80 years old. <laughs> and a little bit, like he drank a little bit, but you know, I'm just saying, I mean, he had his own little world. And there was no power in this building except for where his rooms were. Mm -hmm. So when we wanted to film on a set, he would have to, because he was an engineer, mm -hmm. and he would rig the, the settings for us. So in the meantime, <laughs> get around this building we all had on these um miners headlamps oh, wow and it was like total darkness going around in this old brewery getting lost in corridors and trying to find our way around with all these pipes and tubes and stuff 
And the scariest part was there were holes in the floor where it was like oh, a no. drop. <laughs> and you had to constantly watch, like, don't walk or you just disappear. You know, so we the first like thing, pretty dangerous. Oh, oh my gosh, yes. And it's like is it well, I always used to say this thing where God protects idiots and children and we weren't children. <laughs> I can say that because so, officially an idiot. Not yeah, Don, Don would have been dead if he was there. Yeah, I would have been no. dead. I would have fell in every hole. Uh, but you know, and it, it is a miracle because, like, one time our um, our, uh, our our chief uh, uh, mechanical effects uh, person, Ezra Hamill, he was one time he crawled over on top of this thing and he was working on something. And he thought he was only one story off the ground until John Gallo, our producer, came up and goes, Ezra, what are you doing? And he shined a light down and it was a five-story drop. <laughs> wow. He didn't know it. <laughs> he didn't know it. So, um, but we had, we had one injury. My, uh, my AC, my uh, assistant camera operator, his name was Chuck. And he was one of these kind of guys that would be like, um, it was the Big Bang Theory. What's the guy with the soup bowl haircut? The one that looks like a beetle. Sheldon? Yeah, no, not Sheldon. Howard. He him, oh, Howard. 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 He was sort of a Howard type, and he was kind of always thought he was an engineer and whatever, and we were filming on a rooftop. Now, part of the building had actually burned down, so there was parts of the rooftop we were not supposed to go across, <laughs> and we were like, it was some little camera part that was missing, and we just go, you got to go now, you got to get it, and like, without thinking, he runs across the roof, we're all watching, we're all screaming, Chuck, no, Chuck, no, and then whoosh, he falls through the roof. Oh, no. Oh, oh, okay. Oh. Okay, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. We're all we're like, okay, we just killed our AC. And as it turned out, in this giant warehouse that's like a 50-foot high ceiling, there was this crank evader that was sitting right underneath where he fell oh, and fell onto oh, the crank evader. One spot where he could fall. Yeah. The one place where he didn't oh. die, where he wouldn't have died, and he fell, and of course, oh. he injured his knee, so he had a oh, leg. Right and, there. We all had to take care of him and blah, 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 but we were grateful to do it. So, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, so like when you do see Chrome, where we talk about it being hyper action. So like when uh, L, the, um, the reclaimer, throws Chrome through like a, um, uh, a skylight, we actually threw it through a skylight and we actually had, you know, the airbags and everything. It's not CGI. There's not CGI. When they, when they destroy an elevator shaft and fall down an elevator shaft, that's actors with wires doing this. And it's not cheesy like the 1970s version of Spider-Man. <laughs> that. that was great. You can see the wires. You can see the wires. He's going up the wall. You know? And uh, so it wasn't like that, but, but, uh, but the stunts were, were, they were real stunts and we did very little like, and then also bear in mind as green screen was coming in, we didn't know we could do like, just have them hang in front of a wire and go like this and then like take the body and move it across the screen. <laughs> so we did a lot of stupid, crazy stuff that later on we were going like, oh God, we didn't need to drop him 30 feet on a wire and have him do this thing at the last minute. He could have just hung there mm -hmm. and we could have just moved his body, but we were, you know, I mean, at that time, the Macs were the the, the latest high end Mac was iMacs, mm -hmm. and they were those like this, like a fish tank body. Yeah, yeah. They just yeah. came out of the little pink ones where you actually had to insert <laughs> the memory card and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. So, but anyway, but that was the start. Chrome's been in the making for a very long time, huh? Right, right. So, so we filmed it uh, over twenty weeks. All of these people that were in it, for the most part, that first round of cast, mm -hmm. like for instance, the the wonderful actress. Uh, Katie uh, Tomlinson, who's now Katie Diamond, who played Chrome. Mm. She was 23 years old. And now, you know, we're talking, she has three kids. She owns a cabaret. And amazingly, she's one of the cast members that didn't age. 
and also, <laughs> uh, and also Susan, you know, uh, uh, Susan Goforth, she looks like she looked back then. Of course, she'll tell you, no, you know, yeah. I don't mean to be yeah. sexist, but she'll tell you about her body changes and all of that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> um, but you know, but, but also she has to advantage that she's a kickboxer. Oh. Um, and, uh, and by the way, so, so, so Susan, who played um, L in the film, L the uh, reclaimer, uh, and it's, her story is that her parents were killed by robots, so she just effing hates robots. And she's like, it's her job, she goes out and then the, the government doesn't give you money, it gives you resources. So okay. if you kill a bunch of robots, it'll let you have an old beat up warehouse to live in. Oh, okay. it'll, okay. give you, it'll give you shopping carts full of food. Or if, in her case, they'll give her extra weapons. And, uh, and so she, but she despises robots with a vengeance. And, and I'm, I don't mind letting this one secret out. And pretty much every time she encounters Chrome, Chrome kills her. Hmm. And so they scrape her up, take her to genetic reclaim and they rebuild her as a cyborg. Oh. <laughs> as the movie progresses, little by little by little, L becomes an incredibly big, scary, powerful robot. But she hates Barrel. robots and she hates Chrome all the much worse. Uh, uh, she's turning her into what she hates. Right, right, right. And so, but so Susan, who everybody, I'll just tell you, I have one uh, friend who, when I worked on War of the Worlds, um, he was in the Gulf War. He said Susan is one of the scariest people he ever met because she, <laughs> I'll tell you what it is about her. She's, um, she's like, um, I would almost, the, the way I could equivalent her would be uh, she's Furiosa from Fury Road. <laughs> Okay. That's, okay. that's my okay. partner, Susan. And, and she absolutely like, if you're, if you're coming down the road with the cars are going to face each other like this, she's not going to swear if you are going to die or she, you're both going to die or you're going to die. <laughs> so when she thinks she's right, she's right. And that's why Microsoft used her to, and the, and these companies that she worked for, because she absolutely was structure, structure, structure. And so throw that into the mix with, she's super nice. Bear in mind, she got her start on Broadway um, doing, uh, you know, like guys and dolls and, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, singing in the rain and all of these revivals on Broadway. And so she's a dancer and really super sweet with giant hair. I always call her the hair of 10 women. <laughs> but being a world-class kickboxer and being this really super tough person that when she gets aggressive, I've seen like I've big, seen. big guys just sort of like, you know, pee themselves and back down. I mean, I don't know if I can say it that way, but you know, so, so I have this Gulf War friend who said she's the only woman that's really, truly scared her not to be sexy. Sometimes <laughs> Susan was angry at him when we were on the set, and I saw him slowly positioning himself towards the door, making sure he had, he had room to leave. So, but uh, but what I'm, the reason I'm telling you this is because she's playing this terribly, terribly, terribly frightening person in film, and she tends to be a method actor. So she's walking around being yell the reclaimer and also yelling at people, get over on the set. Why aren't you on the set? How come she's not in makeup yet? <laughs> like this a lot. <laughs> the filming was. And so I always used to say that I was the politician mm. and Susan was the, the general. You know, so like if you wanted somebody, you know, you you wanted somebody to do the soften it, it would be me. But there you go. So so um yeah, so it's so what it took us years and, and then uh, uh, after um, in 2000 and let's see 2007 I think it was I'd have to go back and look at my timing I think it was 2007 one, one of our investors came in came in and gave us uh, two million dollars to, to post our miniatures okay and for all you guys that collect comic books and like this world that we're talking about picture this we took over this 65 foot long warehouse Mm -hmm. and built streets the this this scale you know gi joe scale miniatures 
that were 65 feet long streets and wow. built all of our, our science fiction sets that were, you know, so the cars were bigger than I can show you on this screen. Yeah. The cars were like, they were like this big. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, our first ones, we completely screwed up. We had like, uh, we built them on like Walmart car chassis and they drove like four feet and then the little motors died. <laughs> so we had to go back and then, you know, and get like super high end sophisticated uh, servo motors uh, to be able to, to run these cars with. So then we, we, we got super articulated puppet doll type uh, GI Joes, but all the hands and fingers moved. And okay. we're with, now we're, we're more sophisticated. <laughs> right, we we're more sophisticated now. So we got, um, uh, we had wire rigs. And, and by this time, I want you to know, I'd become friends with some of the people who created Star Wars, some of the effects technicians. Okay. Uh, Mark Wolf, who was uh, the ones who did the, those little spaceships for the original Independent Day, the, the little oh, flying oh, spaceships. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There was one. Oh, right. they did one. Wow. And replicated it and replicated it and replicated it. And they also yeah. built the, I got to touch and play with the, the Bruce Willis car from the fifth element was about this big oh. with a, a wow. G.I. Joe in it. And they popped G.I. Joe's head off and they put a sculpted a little Bruce Willis head, stuck it on it, crammed basically like a big stick up his butt. <laughs> so his head would turn back and forth like this, glued his hands to the steering wheel so that when they turned the steering wheel, the hands would move. And it was a puppeted guy. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't CGI. There was like a little G.I. Joe puppet turning its head in there. And I learned a lot from these guys and they, they gave me all kinds of pointers. And uh, a fellow um, I'm still Facebook friends with, I haven't really communicated with that much lately. His name is uh, Dave Hardberger, who was the, this is just to me, goosebumps. He was the very first guy to put film through the camera and pull the trigger on the Millennium Falcon. Oh, oh wow. And, That's awesome. And, and I mean, just like, oh my God, just to be in the room with this guy, like I'm breathing air with the guy who pulled the Millennium <laughs> yeah. Falcon for, for fanboy things, you know? Yeah. And, and oh my God. And so he told me so much stuff. And like, I, I don't know if I can, I think at this point it doesn't matter. I could reveal this. But one of the things he told me about Star Wars, I and mean, this is so off of our films, yeah. but they would <laughs> set, they set up a giant black velvet tarp on the ground. And they put like a uh, white, white board underneath it and they punched holes in the black velvet, but it was pulled tight. So it was like a trampoline. Okay. Then they got up on like a, a 35 foot high ladder and pointed the camera downward. Now get okay. this. So a lot of the effects in Star Wars where you got spaceships flying through the frames and you're thinking they did all this compositing and CGI work and all this, they just dropped models <laughs> and pointed them in the directions and spun them and then oh, did wow. them in super slow motion. And so a lot of these things going through the frame were actually different angled cameras as the models were just being dropped out of the sky, pointing downward towards star fields. That's amazing. <laughs> In camera stuff, like 1930s style, like, like Wizard of Oz style. <laughs> now, not everything, of course, because there was John Dykstra went across the street to the McDonnell Douglas uh, 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 surplus store and he took an old computer and he built this thing called a motion control camera which Lucas was really against in the beginning. You know, you think he was the great innovator in all of this, but it was budget, budget, budget. Because mm -hmm. they did that film on an $8 million budget. And one day the executives all came over and how do I say this politely? They were all like, well, it's legal here in California now. They were all like uh, partakers of the- <laughs> yep, yep, we gotcha. <laughs> yeah, and so they were like all these model builders, you know, man, they were all like having a great day and it was super hot. It was like a hundred degrees up uh, where they were filming up in Van Nuys. And so they, uh, what is it? Um, the, the shoot, they got it at the McDonnell Douglas aircraft place, the escape shoot from an airplane. And they hooked it to the top of the building and they, they anchored it at the bottom and they made themselves a water slide. <laughs> and, and that's when all the executives from 20th Century Fox showed up. 
<laughs> saw what they were doing oh, and cut three million dollars off of George Lucas's eight million dollar budget and gave him five million bucks. Wow. Oh man. And you guys are you guys are fuck ups, excuse my language, but you guys are <laughs> you don't you don't know what you're doing and they were terrified of Star Wars. Wow. That's so you know, back in the day. So I, I got to hear all these stories, but so when we did these miniatures, you know, we had a lot of direction and a lot of help from the real model builders who really knew how to do this stuff and told us what scale. Sorry about that. I think my, my phone wants to eat me or it's something fine. here. And, uh, but, um, uh, but so we got a lot of direction. So now here's the, here was one of the, the most fun times of my life. We got to spend two years filming giant overscale GI Joe miniatures. Like we were five years old, <laughs> literally every day, blowing up miniature sets, you know, puppeteering dolls around to match the live action dolls. And we had like Barbie doll stand-ins that were, were like on a stand and we'd take our original footage, line it up, look at our shots, make sure our shots all lined up, put the doll in there to get the right camera perspective. And then, you know, and then pull the focus on it to make sure that it was the right links so that at the end, all you'd have to do is stick our live actions in front of a green screen in with those models. And it was all pre-lined up for us. It wasn't wow. a tremendous amount of, of, of well, it's tremendous. We've seen some images that you shared from the last show of some of the miniatures and the sets, and it really looks cool. It looks like a, a lot of fun to play with. <laughs> oh, God, it, was so fun. it was so fun. And, and I, we, I had friends growing up that used to use M80s on GI Joe stuff. So <laughs> that was, this was like this. And these were all like, you know, because we had real pyrotechnicians who knew yeah. how to, how to make a six foot fireball versus a three foot fireball, you know, like that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And, and, yeah. uh, and that's when I learned, you know, like a butane fires, like a big giant fireball you often seen in the movies in the old days, you could actually stick your hand in it and not be burned. It was just hmm. butane. Oh, wow. like they just let a certain amount of butane out into the air and then go whoosh. And just like, if you've ever done the lighter thing, I didn't know, Kids yeah. don't do this at home. Yeah. <laughs> Put some butane into your hand and then you light it and you go yep. like this. Yeah. You know, but don't do this, don't do this, because the, the lighters are, are yes. highly compressed Children, and can explode. Don't play with lighters. <laughs> yeah, they can explode. They can explode. Tim is not endorsing anyone to play with lighters. <laughs> no, no, no. These were these were licensed pyrotechnicians. <laughs> who also happened to be just super fun people who were like, you know, we, we partied on these sets. It's hard to hard to explain this. Tim says stay in school and don't play with lighters. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, so then we finished that out. And then, um, uh, you know, I, a couple of things, a tragedy hit us. And for one, my mom died, you know, which is none of us want that. Yeah. And, and that was bad. And then, uh, but uh, our co-producer, uh, John Gallo, who was a champion, who worked on War of the Worlds with us, shot the original Chrome with us. Mm -hmm. um, he got a sinus infection. And he was like just dealing with this for a couple of weeks and, and he had a head cold. Mm. And then it was on uh, Thanksgiving uh, Thanksgiving dinner, John was a big guy. I mean, he's a bodybuilder -y kind of guy, but not like Arnold. I mean, he was just big, like a, like a power lifter guy. Yeah. And so we had extra big turkey and extra food for him and had his, we actually had his designer beer from last year was still in the fridge. So we had that ready for, for him. And, uh, and he didn't show up for Thanksgiving and at 10 o'clock at night, we get a call from the hospital and said, if you want to see your friend, John, you have about an hour. Oh, wow. And what happened was he had a head cold and um, I guess picking his nose, he tore a hole in his nose. He got an infection that went up into his bloodstream. I didn't even knew you could die from a head cold. Wow. Yeah. And, and from a nose infection. So like I, you know, from the rest of my life, I've been like, well, we're weirdly aware of your nose and like picking your nose. Wow. Because he got a blood infection and it went directly to his heart. Oh, wow. And um, it, it, I don't know how to express this, but it tanked us. It just tanked us for a while. There was, mm. the spirit was gone out of us and 
yeah. a lot of other stuff happened. So, and then plus, you know, there, this was massive. I mean, I was, this is crazy what we did. Yeah. This picture is crazy. You're going to see it's like that when, when you see the first episode, there's more action in this first episode. It's a, it's, a, it's a half an hour long, the first one. There's more action in this first episode than there is in like, you know, one of the early Avengers film. It oh, just wow. goes and goes and goes. And that's why we're calling it hyper action because it's, it's, it was, it's a lot of stuff. And, and like you guys, imagine, you know, you guys working on this for years as comic guys, as fantasy guys, nobody could ever stop creating. So they kept adding things and adding ideas and adding stories. Yeah, yeah. And, there was a, and there was a point where, you know, I'd have to go, you know, too much in the kitchen sink, but how do we focus on this and find our focus and get everything to work? And then plus I had, and this is where I'm probably insane. I get it. I'm clinically. <laughs> this but uh that i thought i would i wanted to do this um I, I wanted to do this film like it was shot in the 1950s or the 1930s i wanted it to have i wanted it to have a retro look i wanted it from the get-go to have a kind of a beat-up scritchy look like you were watching the saturday morning cartoons uh, not cartoon serials yeah. um when i was a kid my favorite was a, a serial called rocket man and he had a bullet helmet which of course iron man for sure stanley you know, for sure, Stanley designed Rocket Man after Rocket Man. I mean, uh, Iron Man after Rocket Man. <laughs> and of course, Rocket Man was a dummy on a wire that they flew over the California hills and all of that kind of stuff. But that that cliffhanger feeling of like, how are they going to get out of the car? It went over the cliff. They all died in the car cliff, and then it crashed at the bottom and it exploded. And then, of course, next week they'd show you footage where they jumped out at the last second. Mm -hmm. And I had that in my heart that, besides it being, I wanted it to be a story of depth and character, and it is and it's got heart and I'm a much better director all these years later. So coming to it and telling the story with Natasha when she finally came in, um, you know, it's subtle and sophisticated mixed with this. You'll see what I'm talking about. It's scritchy and old looking and weird. And, and I, when I, I'll tell you the other films I saw that were similar to it. There was a film called, um, the movie was rough and you guys might have your own opinions on this called Sucker Punch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But the look and feel of Sucker Punch. Yeah. Yeah. Like how Chrome feels. Okay. Uh, and then uh, uh, the one of the producers from Sin City really, really wanted this film because it looks like kind of like Sin City if Sin City was in color. Mm -hmm. Okay. It has a, and and so I was going for two kind of a feelings. I wanted it to be, because I was a comic collector when I was a kid, and I'm a giant comic book fan, and I wanted it to be like if a comic book came to life, like if a comic book was on screen in in. You know, George, I think George Miller kind of pulled that off somewhat with, you guys can all argue, right, about Fury Road with the super bright, oversaturated colors and the cartoonish yeah. look. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of what I had in mind. And when I saw that, you know, and I have actually the same color timer who did my color timing for Chrome, did the color timing for Fury Road. So uh, okay. came back and did that uh, and, and did that work. So um, I've run completely out of steam now. <laughs> no, but go ahead. You guys probably have questions and I'm... No, I mean, honestly, you were answering pretty much every question I think we had. Yeah, I think so. I think it covered my whole section. Yeah, I was looking down the line. I'm like, yep, got that one. Yep, that one. I mean... Let me see, let me like, see. Yep, he got them all. <laughs> how did you, like, bringing Natasha in years later, like, did you have someone else for the role of Perdix? that was well, originally going to do it or was that like an add-in later on? No, no, I actually did. Um, when I had shot uh, my story, 10 Days in a Madhouse, I had cast N uh, Nelly Bly uh, out of a contest I did with Google and YouTube. And we had, um, we thought we were going to get like 200 
contestants to compete for the role of Nellie Bly. Christopher mm -hmm. Lambert was in the film. He was the principal villain. You know who he is, of course. He's uh, yeah. Tarzan Greystoke and was in those, um, the uh, Mortal Kombat uh, yeah. uh, movies. Mm -hmm. He was rated. And, uh, and uh, pardon me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, it's funny because uh, when, I, when I walk around with him in LA, and when we meet up and we, you know, we go close a restaurant or something, um, it's funny because the older people will come up and go, oh, Greystoke, oh, or, or, or what was it, the other one, Highlander. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the younger yeah. people will go, the younger people will go, Mortal Kombat, oh, yeah. Mortal Kombat, you know, they remember that, so. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and I love Christopher. He's, he's such a generous, loving person, really super nice and, and very worldly sophisticated. He grew up in Geneva. He was born in New York City, but grew up in Geneva. Hmm. And, uh, and, and he and I get along like two peas in a pod, you know, so, but, um, but when I cast Nellie Bly, I wanted it to be an unknown. I wanted it, I wanted Nellie Bly to be the star, like how they cast Christopher Reeves as Superman, as opposed yeah. to having Nicolas Cage as Superman or somebody else that, you know, or what was it, uh, Robert Redford they had in the costume at one point. You know, <laughs> and I know, I know, right? Can you imagine that? Or like Hugh Jackman and Wolverine, you know, something like that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so, so they wanted it to not be the star. And so that's kind of what I was doing with her. And so we did a contest where we uh, were expecting like a couple of hundred people and we got 8,000 contestants wow. put, in their, put in their videos. And then we were gonna have the public vote. And then guess what? Surprise, surprise, people were cheating. And oh, no. people were getting votes that were, shouldn't <laughs> be getting votes. And that's, we actually had to shut it down because people were getting, as you know how fans can be, people were oh, very, yeah. very angry, yeah. like to the point mm -hmm. where, we should not be getting death threats over a movie contest. People are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I faced him with my first horrible version of War of the World. So we can talk about that at some point. I mean, a line we use a lot is this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's also true. Right. So, so I, I, after I did 10 days in a madhouse and Caroline did a, a beautiful job and the film is still uh you know there's nelly back there you know it's the film is still doing very well and i've i've actually i've got cast natasha in a sequel we're going to do in about three years okay um which uh, actually that's called 60 days and it's when nelly bly was older and she was the only female reporter allowed on the front lines in world war one the original actual real wonder woman wow because when she arrived uh, uh on the polish border like six hours after she got there the huns started shelling the allies no one called the allies then but it was the british and, uh, and they, uh, they started shelling them and they shelled them for 60 days straight without a break, artillery, <laughs> artillery fire for 60 days. And that was Nellie Bly's experience. Wow. And so I've written a film that is basically, that's it. It's 60 days of, of surviving artillery fire in the trenches of World War I as a woman when no women were there at that time. And so wow. Natasha's gonna play that part and I know she's gonna do a fabulous job. But, wow. but coming back to this, so I originally had cast Caroline Berry who was my Nellie Bly. And uh, we had done a, a couple of rounds with her. And, you know, it's um, an interesting thing about Caroline. She, she got to be very gigantic in the business. She, she got a name for herself. The film is still doing extremely well. And for personal reasons, as can, people can make this choice, she decided not to continue acting. Hmm. And uh, which is, to me, honestly, is a super sane choice. I mean, it's a very hard business. And yeah. I encourage anybody who wants to quit the entertainment business, go now, <laughs> run as fast as you can, because it's hard. It's, you yeah. know, and, and you've got, you know, and, and as you climb up the ladder of Hollywood and you start getting closer to the real executives, uh, one of my friends uh, who ran Sony Pictures for years is a nice guy, but you've got to imagine the people that hold these positions the higher up you go, the nicer they do not get. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they got a lot more competition, just like with politicians, like your local congressman is going to be a much nicer guy than, let's say, your average senator, because senators all have, you know, bodies buried in their basements to get there, that mm -hmm. kind of a thing. And, and when you get to be that level where we, I was butting up all the time against, you know, these, these, you know, A players and real Hollywood people, I, you know, there was some bites I got. Um, and I'll just share with you guys, I was, I was about to do a film and I had a heart attack one day before filming. And, and uh, one of the agents was so angry at me because I cost him all this money. And I was in the hospital hooked up to tubes and wires. And he was literally screaming, frothing, frothing at the mouth at me. And I said, look, I just had a heart attack. I, I, I don't even like I, I'm on drugs. I don't even know what you're doing. Like, I don't know what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And he looks at wow. me and he goes, maybe you don't have the heart for the business. So oh, wow. just like, whoa, these were wow. like, yeah, Beelzebub, Beelzebub, you know, so, but, you know, the agents are necessary evil because they, they got to get the money for their actors and somebody has to take the fall for everything. So it's got to be them, you know, but, um, but anyway, so then um, uh, I met Natasha because I was called in on this little film called uh, uh, Charlie Boy, uh, which was a, a, an actual, you would say a, a mobster. Uh, Greg Criticos, wonderful, superhuman, super nice human being, who deep into his life, he realized he was on the wrong course and just completely one day stepped away from the mob and became a good guy and started helping people and became kind of like act one was he was a mobster that was literally scary, terrifying. They still, when I would walk around in the streets of Astoria when I was filming with him, a lot of people would still call him Tretch, short for treacherous. <laughs> and yet when I knew him, I kept meeting person after person after person who Greg had saved their life, had pulled people out of alleys, alcoholics, and, and helped people re rehabilitate and, and, and uh, help person after person after person get their act and get their life back together and not to be in the mob and not to be on drugs and not to be in alcohol and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's proud of, he has a, whatever it is, a multi-year chip. He's like eight or nine years into his sobriety. And, uh, and yet he was a guy who he told me a story once of like, you know, he once threw a chair through a dance studio's window and said, I'm going to be back tomorrow to collect the money. And the guy had all the money in cash and coins and, and some jewelry and a couple of Cracker Jacks boxes worth of stuff and whatever to Jeez. pay the thing off. So by the time I meet him, he co-wrote this script with a really wonderful uh, writer named uh, Frederick Stroppel. You guys would have to look it up, but he's done all of these really wonderful things. And that's where I met Mike uh, uh, Rockowitz, who was uh, editor of Marvel Comics. Okay. And, uh, and he worked on my film. Mar uh, Mike came in and he, he crewed for us. And it was so cool for me having a Marvel Comics editor just like setting <laughs> lights over there and helping us out, yeah. you know. And uh, so when I was shooting this little film, and that's what it was, it was... And the the, the, the storyline is some bad guys become good guys and it isn't bullshit it's really happens and this was based on i start excuse my language again but this stuff really happens and and greg was amazing how he pulled all this stuff together and, and he's a mover and a shaker and now now he's a stand-up comic and he's a he's a straight guy and he and he you know right like like how do you go from being a mobster to being a stand-up comic yeah and uh but um he introduced me to a, a wonderful producer um I'm not going to say he was a mobster. Uh, Dominic Martini, who was 400 pounds, he's down to 300 now. And um, the guy that you don't want this guy angry at you. <laughs> but he's one of my best friends now. And, and he's, he's truly a humanist and the same thing, you know, like he, you know, he's worked towards the light and he's had a good life. And um, so we were shooting this film and, um, and I was shooting on the street and an actress fell away 
And you guys, I don't know if you guys looked it up and you saw the thing about Sean Young. Did you guys know anything about that? No. no so huh? Sean, Sean was the star of my movie. Oh, okay. And uh, I can only tell you that she ran into some troubles with our production. And I, okay. she blames me, but I'm not the one who fired her. The producer fired her. Wow. And so what she did is in revenge is she dressed up in a Catwoman outfit like a like a dark ninja turtle thing and uh, climbed up a, the back drain pipe of our offices while we were out shooting and stole all of our editing computers with her son. Wow. Cat, That's crazy. She cat burgled us. And, and we were, so then, so we called the police. She didn't think we would do it. She wanted to negotiate getting her son in the film and a couple of other things. And God bless Sean. She's going to say bad things that I'm saying this, but that's okay. And, uh, and so, you know, she wanted to negotiate. And instead I called the, I called the police department and we got a detective on Will. So apparently, you know, when it goes out on the teletype on the police, somebody leaked to the press. So the next morning, knock, knock, knock on my door and I'm thinking it's the police. And I, and, and I opened the door and there's this young woman standing there and I said, who are you? And she said, my name's Georgina. And I said, oh, are you with the, the, Los, or the, the New York Police Department? And she said, no, I'm with the, the New York Post. And I looked at her and she looked at me and I said, are you the only one? And she said, no, you should go look out your window. Oh. And I went over to my window and there was TMZ, Entertainment Weekly, People Magazine, oh, wow. uh, all the evening news, all the newspapers. And there was like hundreds of media people because Sean Young, who always wanted to play the Catwoman, she cat burgled us. She cat burgled us. And, and so, you know, so like, how is that not news? How did she think that she was going to do this? And, you know, so she'll yell at me and she'll say that I'm, I'm bipolar or I'm whatever. And I'm okay with that. I mean, I am autistic wow. and I am hard to work with because, uh, you know, I have kind of tend to be high energy. But um, so after a week, a week of hiding out from the police, being on the run and being a fugitive, Eventually, a detective Nunzio, a Nunzio uh, got through to her and managed to get her to understand that not only was she going to be arrested for felony, you know, burglary, but her son was going to be arrested too. And then within two hours, I get a call from the AP wire and they said, um, your computers have been returned to Sean Young's uh, attorney. Would you like to uh, make a statement to us? And so I said, you know, rightfully so, I wish Sean the best of luck and I hope she does really well. And I, you know, I didn't do what some of the other guys were saying about her. I just, you know, I want her to have a good life and, and it's, this is a hard business. And I, you know, whatever her personal issues were, um, are between her and the world and not between me and her. And I'm glad to be on a list that along with James Woods and uh, Ridley Scott and some of these people that she's publicly trashed, I get to be very proud of people (laughs) where she's gone out there at the comic book conventions and just completely royally trashed me big time. And uh, she wrote me like a seven page email every day for three months. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> Just give you a perspective of how focused she was on me. And if she's, if she's not good to me. Type in Don Young Catwoman and like so many stories right? come up in a Google search with your uh, name in it and everything. Uh, right, there you so go. I've been <laughs> Googling this whole time while he's talking. I'm like, this is incredible. So I have to put the connection to who Sean Young was. I'm like, oh my God. This she's a Blade Runner. She was the replicant, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, are you, are you calling me a replicant or a lesbian? She's that woman, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and she was in No Way Out with Kevin Costner. She, you know, she had a giant career. Yeah. And, uh, and she's an amazing actress. That's what I can say about her, you know, and 
when she's not in a certain specific frame of mind, she's a lovely woman and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's all I'm going to say is that, you know, yeah. I, I, it's love, hate, I, you know, with Sean. But if she's not nice to me, I've got seven pages of letters that I'm <laughs> files. <laughs> I know, I'm kidding. Is that blackmail? I can't do that. No, 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 no. I will never do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, until I'm super old. <laughs> and, uh, but but um, no, but so then then when Sean bowed out, um, uh, I had this part, and Natasha came in, and I didn't know because she was introduced to me as uh, Natasha Shalom. She was I didn't know she was a Coppola or anything like that, mm-hmm. and she was just lovely. And immediately we just super got along, and you know now look, she will argue this, but. I bet if she got tested, she's a little bit on the spectrum because she's a super nice person who's a geek. And she, and what, what, who do you know that can sit and talk about neutrinos for two hours and not get bored? <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? So, so Natasha and I, like, we're just, we're just, we're just super friends and super cool. And she comes from a very different world than I do. Of course, you guys know that. She's, yeah. she's among superstars and she deals with family issues with Uncle Nicky and her <laughs> Uncle Francie and, and all those kind of things. And, you know, and she's never not had a doorman and, you know, that kind of thing. And her world's just a, and that's not her fault. There's nothing wrong with that. But we get on the phone. She's extremely you know, probably, down to earth and extremely nice too. For Oh my gosh. From that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Insane and, and super sweet and has a, a gigantic heart. Yeah. And, and we probably talk about an hour a day on the phone. And, uh, and you know, so we, we, we'll get on and we'll just, and like, I'm not kidding. We'll, we'll talk about, you know, UFO conspiracies or, or <laughs> you know, and, and she's, she is a giant um, uh, from the movie perspective of the superhero fans. You know, she wasn't particularly a comic book fan, you know, just, it wasn't her, her space, mm. but, but she knows all the, like, and, you know, she kind of went up a couple of times when she couldn't name people. And I was going like, you should have said Black Widow. There's a whole bunch of people you could have named, you know, when she did the thing with you guys. Uh, so. yeah, but we already had our cast as female Hawkeye. You know? Right, right. That's a really good, that's a good choice. Yeah. That's a good choice. Yeah. That's, that's what we're exactly. going to push Marvel to hire as Kate Bishop. Yeah, and you know, and so, I mean, she actually grew up hanging around with Nicholas Cage. And, you know, I mean, they, you know, when she comes down, comes out to LA from New York, that's who she stays with. And, and it's, it's real. That's not like she's some distant relative who says, you know, I'm a Coppola, but nobody in the family really knows who she is because she was the 11th granddaughter of somebody yeah. over here. Mm-hmm. That's her uncle and that's her granduncle. And, and uh, Sophia is her, her cousin and they, you know, and they hang out and that they have, and I am not at liberty to share, but, you know, just like everybody, they have their family problems and they have yeah. their issues and, and they share that kind of stuff, but her family means everything to her. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but as an actress, you know, her, her acting training is impeccable. Yeah. And, and for me as a director, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I finally, here's where I, I have to say, it's only been a few years that I call myself a professional. Mm-hmm. I've done this since I was, you know, since the 1970s. And I started off direct, directing pre- Preparation H commercials and, and, and <laughs> Frosted Mini Wheats and, and Imperial Margarine commercials. Hey, all great products. Right, right? <laughs> so it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, is that I hit this realization that I was too nice mm. with people. And that I would, let their, I would let people get away with stuff because I liked them as people. And what I finally realized is I'm serving no one no one to do that mm-hmm. and so now i have this this and i'm it's draconian it's like the Habsburgs had uh, for a thousand years they had over their door for every one of us you kill we will kill 10 of you and i'm not i'm not that bad but but what, <laughs> but what i do have is i have there's two kinds of things you can bring to my set 
and that is, and I got it's kind of how I, I swear, I'm sorry about this, but, uh, but it's, you either bring excellence or you bring shit. Mm-hmm. And if you're not bringing excellence, you're bringing shit. Mm-hmm. And so don't come to my set and don't talk to me and don't, don't even waste my time unless you're bringing excellence. Now perfection, what is that? That's for God's. That's for God and that's for the universe and who knows what perfection is. Mm-hmm. But you bring the best you can humanly do or get the fuck out of my way. I'm sorry, I don't mm-hmm. want to have anything to do with you. Yeah, right. And, yeah. And, and that's it. And once I made that choice, well, let me give you an example. When I was filming Charlie Boy, I walked off the set at least six times because people were just disorganized. And I, I literally, I, I was doing steady cam right on my body and I strapped myself out of the steady cam and I go, see that button on the camera? That's the on button. There's your focus and there's your thing. I'm out of here. And I just walked off the set and it wasn't to mess with people. I just literally don't want to do it if people aren't going to show up and, you know, we're all, look, we get to dress up and play act mm-hmm. and pretend and then film it and sell it to people. And what better effing life can you have right. than to get to play, yeah. get to play as adults. Yeah. And so, and that's, that's, you know, that's how I, how I finally completed Chrome when, when, when Natasha came on and she took over the voice of Perdix, she brought, well, at first, when when Natasha uh, uh, finally came on and I realized her very first words out of her mouth, I I said, oh my God, she's doing a British accent. Hmm. And I said, oh no, she's going to do Emma Thompson Poppins. And I'm afraid that it's going to be this like really bad, you know, and and it took her like two minutes to find it because she was just trying to find her accent. But, you know, she was trained in Britain. You know, she was trained in Great Britain. And I I live there too. So, I, I mean, I know the accents. There's like 78 dialects in London alone. Yeah. And, and you know it's it's not just there's cockney and then there's this you know it's it's the, the, there's all these little regions mm-hmm. and the north of england is different from over here and right away i saw that not just doing the accent but that she brought this character of humanity to the character and that she never judged the character and that she you know she saw all of these things about the robot about reset in her brain and and how the robot works and and because her character, she had to be very shy about it, but I, as the director, can reveal a little bit more. <laughs> she is literally the most important film in the, the character in the film, even more important than Chrome. Oh, wow. Oh. And because, the, you know, she's, as we said, and I can't tell you why for the same reason she couldn't, but she's the Merlin character. Okay. And she's engineering this world in a way. And, uh, and uh, so what we did is the first episode we shot uh, with her, it was just voice. And then uh, we're just now preparing to do episode two where her little faceplate comes off and it's going to be Natasha's face in there. Oh, and nice. so she's, but she's a little flying robot that's this big. And then all these like parts and things come out of her like snakes and, and wires and tubes because she's a, a flying repair bot. Oh, okay. And uh, she's the one who actually gives Chrome her origins, uh, her origin. Okay. And the other reason why I was afraid of Chrome was, you know, I shot the first 10 minutes of the story, Chrome is nude and she's a pleasure bot. Okay. And on her very first day, when she comes right, they steal her out of the factory. Some some bad guy criminals steal her from the factory, and her her human injury inhibitor is damaged. Okay. And so they're busy arguing over her, and you can see her getting more and more upset. And every time they call her a pleasure bot, she goes, "Don't call me that." Mm. And every time they go, "You damn pleasure bot," and she goes, "I told you not to call me that." And I did one of these screens, like inside of Iron Man's helmet, where you see the human injury inhibitor thing dissolve, yeah. and then it goes self-preserve, self-preserve, self-preserve. And this guy, this this horrible pimp guy, has no idea that he's slapping her and he's beating her up. He's going, "I'm gonna have to break you in myself," and he's doing this whole thing. <laughs> and we're on the audience's side, and and you know what? 
for every kid that's ever been bullied, mm. for everybody who's ever had to face bad guys, this film is for you. Wow. Because, awesome. because she's this little nakedy girl who, and I mean, as a you know, woman, but I'm a boy. So I mean, in that context, cause I'm a feminist, you know, and I don't mean as in, you know, female species, female of the species. Yeah. And he basically starts beating her up and she grabs him by the fist and crushes him and throws him through a wall and then races out into the night. And so the first portion of the film was, you know, I have naked girl fighting these big giant beefy guys in iron guard outfits shooting at her and blowing holes in her, blowing holes in her body. And so she's bleeding out as a robot when Perdix, Natasha's character finds her and there's some repair bots in hiding and they take pity on her because they realize like we can't repair her human injury inhibitor and as soon as it, but if we repair her she's just going to go out and get herself killed in two seconds. Okay. So instead they decide to outfit her with their military grade weapons, weapons proof armor <laughs> to protect her from the, the fact that she's not going to be able to back down. Nice. And so her motive in the beginning of the film is that she doesn't think robots are alive because that's the whole premise of the film. The robots have had the, the singularity, the sentient leap. And the corporation says, no, this is, a, this is Flash. This is a burn off of you guys being super intelligent machines. Yeah. And it's just what you think about yourselves. So you're broken. In other words, if you think you're alive, go to, the, go to genetic reclaim because you're broken. Mm -hmm. And that's what they want to do and take all these robots that think they're alive and reset them. Mm -hmm. And so Chrome, it's not that she's like uh, trying to be Robin Hood but she just can't tolerate these badass bastard mean people. Mm -hmm. And so that's what it is. So when she actually saves a bunch of robots after one, we called her Bambi, the character played by Jamie Lynn C. She'll you'll see this character, why we call her Bambi, because mm -hmm. she was literally like, oh, she's like this. <laughs> Colonel Zat, who's played by wonderful Anthony Piana, who played my writer in War of the Worlds. Mm -hmm. um, he he wants to make a, an example for the robots and he's talking, 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 and he just turns around with unexpectedly and just shoots her in the head and blows her head off, mm. blows off Bambi's head, uh, you know, which is her actual character's name is Mercury. I mean, I mean, uh, Cricket, uh, Copper, Copper. And he bends down and goes, well, now that's what I call a migraine. And he's just like this bastard. He's this terrible person. And so when Chrome shows up and sort of intervenes, and Perdix says, you know, we owe, you know, we owe you for our lives. The telltale line for Chrome is she goes, well, then you owe me nothing. Mm. But now get out of here before more Iron Guards come back and blow the rest of you guys up. Because Chrome doesn't think they're alive or real. She doesn't have this, I'm a sentient creature who she just doesn't like the, um, you know. And so, so in a sense, she's like, you know, she's like your hero person who steps in between you and the person who's been, you know, shoving your head in the toilet and goes, hey, knock it off. Yeah. And mm -hmm. of course... The robotic underground which is what my whole premise of my movie comes together and i got a good twilight zone ending to this whole thing too um uh, uh they 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 incorporate chrome they they conscript her and that's that's as far as i want to go because then i'm telling you my story <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited about it it's so spoilers <laughs> and then you got, you got a half hour we got a half hour episode coming out on saturday and right. then it's what every three months right we're doing every three months we're almost we're almost completed with episode two we're about to record N natasha next week okay. uh for yeah. her second set of characters and uh, because i'm bringing more subtlety and sophistication for the me now tim 2020 mm -hmm. to the 1996 script i wrote back then which right. some of the stuff that i was envisioning people have done in the movie 16 times over yeah mm -hmm. and so, so we're adapting that but like i say when you watch it, it's, it i wanted it to be fun 
And that's the only way I can say it is that, that if I wasn't having fun and if you're not having fun, then you get your money back. Don't tell anybody I said that. I don't mean that. <laughs> but metaphorically, I wish, I wish you your money back if you didn't enjoy it. So of your $10 Hulu subscription or Amazon Prime. Right, right. Amazon or, or, or what is it? We're on Apple TV, uh, Apple TV Plus uh, now as well with uh, the Tom Hanks movie and, and a few others. And how there, many so. episodes do you think will be this for this? So, so we've, we've already clocked it out that it's going to be the first series is going to end in five episodes. Okay. And then I can't name the distributor yet, but we already have a distributor who's super, super excited about this and wants to do a season two immediately. Oh, awesome. So we're going you know, and then I'm like any actor from the past who gives me trouble. It's an upgrade. The robot upgraded. <laughs> 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 kind of like the, the new Batman coming in, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so, uh, but, but, uh, I just watched it last night in advance of this interview to see if I was deluding myself and is this really just a piece of shit and oh my God, and I'm just terrified because you know, it was about to open. Yeah. And no, no, he loved it. The director loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so, other than Crumb, what, do you have anything else? Like you said, you're working with Natasha on that one film. Do you have yeah, 60 else? Days. You want to well, give us a little preview of what you have maybe coming? I, I have two. I have two films. Um, uh, you know, and I and I, I love superhero action films. So I mean, I think that that's where I'm going to stick with the, that side of it is going to be Chrome, Chrome, Chrome. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got a film that we're about to shoot out in this in the the late um, summer where we're going to do what I was talking about the uh, social quarantining, how we're going to set it up and make everything right. right. And it's a it's a it's a, a really super dark comedy i don't know if any of you guys have ever heard of this movie but there was this movie with ryan o'neill and tatum o'neill called paper moon and probably oh. too old for you guys but if you go google this yeah. and you see it and it's uh it's set in 1932 and what i did was because i i just i you know fun i mean movies got to be fun number one for me or else like like if i were going to tell you my favorite films you know it's it's the spider-man number two with doc ock okay you know like yep. if i'm going to pick it out that's one of my favorite uh, uh, you know action films the Wonder Woman scene when she climbs over no man's land. Yeah. That moment yeah. is like one of the best superhero moments ever to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She climbs over no man's land. The yeah. original first Iron Man, the very first Iron Man was to me, I'm sorry, it's still the best of all the Iron Man's was that that was it for me. Yep. Yep. And Agreed. And, uh, and of the of George Miller's movie, The Road Warrior, what we call the Road Warrior here, Mad Max Two. Okay. Yeah. Furiosa kind of gets close to that, a bit wandery, a bit of a Road Warrior remake, yep. but enough to where I was like, no, guys, I like this, you know, and a lot of my <laughs> friends are like, you know, but, but, but so, so I'm like, I'm very much uh, like classic kind of science fiction. So here's the premise of my movie. It's called God's Country, nothing to do with religion. And it's about a, um, a woman who was so super, super wealthy in 1929 that she didn't know where the kitchen was in her own house. Oh, wow. And her clothes came to her on a bed laid out for her. Wow. And she didn't do anything to take care of herself when the stock market collapses and she's completely rendered penniless. And so oh. her and her cousin, who's a star, who you guys are going to love who it is, it's a female lead, who was in a movie that I would just say was Nicolas Cage was in also, but I can't name yet because of contractual reasons. But you can <laughs> And oh my God. And so these two women, they, that, that her husband gets a job to be the head of the hatcheries in Washington State, which at that time it was the wilderness. The not electrified by all plans and all of that stuff yet. So we're still, still you know, we're, we're talking, um, we're talking as, as wildernessy as it gets. And as they arrive, uh, the hatchery closes and they have nothing. And so she is basically the way I can describe her in the script is um, 
her script is that she is the meanest, worst human being that you've ever met that you would delete if you could. And you want to kill her and bash her over the head with a, with anything rather than to hear her voice for one screechy more second. She, she, she criticizes her cigarettes and every human being. And so they roll across this little thing over to this, uh, where they're going to meet a man who's selling them this house who took their money already. Mm -hmm. This little shack they're going to move into and there's no shack, there's no money, there's no nothing. And her, she starts browbeating her husband so heavily that he just gets up, looks at her like a zombie and walks off into the forest for them to never see him again. <laughs> so now wow. my story, this is my movie. It's a, it's a two hour movie of how two people with zero survival skills survive and become human beings and become people that at the end of the movie, you're gonna know who this person is and know why she is who she is. And oh, she's wow. gonna grow her humanity. And it's luck, 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 luck that they don't die. <laughs> that, they, that they find out, figure out ways to survive and the stupid things they do. And wow. if you've ever seen an episode of this um, Bear Grylls, Man versus Wild, yeah. it's kind of like that, but with two people who are not Bear Grylls, two people who are like <laughs> so stupid that for survival that they don't know the most basic thing about living and that's where the comedy comes in. Oh, wow. And, and so, yeah, so we're shooting awesome. that this fall. And then I'll tell you one other that I think everybody's like, I know people are going to beat me to the punch now on this and I don't care because they're not going to do what I'm going to do. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm doing an, a biography of, uh, of uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. And what's, and what's unique about it is that I've pitted the tuberculosis, the Red Death, is the monster. And this is a monster movie. And I'm shooting it in black and white like Frankenstein. Oh, okay. That's cool. Okay. And, yeah. and because everything in his life that he ever wrote about was tuberculosis, was consumption. And the House of Usher... His wife, when she was giving a, a, a recital in her white dress, started coughing. She had tuberculosis and coughed up all over her red, all over her white dress and covered herself in red blood. And there's, it has scenes in it where that's just beyond drama. I don't even know how to say this because it really happened. But when she died, his loss was so great. His heartbreak was so complete that he literally, for two years, he went out and slept on her grave every <laughs> night. He just couldn't get close enough to her. And his grandmother would come out and literally dig him out of the snow to, you know, and that's what, what formed the man of this, I mean, the brain of this guy. Yeah. And so I've got it set up where if you could see it like a, like Outbreak or like one of those movies, Pandemic or whatever it's called or Epidemic, or I don't know the names of the, some of the movies, but, or like, an, uh, you know, where, but again, but the alien species is this tuberculosis. And I think the timing is right for us all right now. Mm -hmm. And how did people yeah. cope with that? How did they deal with that? How did they deal with social distancing back in the 1850s? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think that we're going to feel connected and relevant to that and feel, uh, uh, you know, as opposed to it being like, oh, God, who wants to see anything more? Because you cannot turn on anything where it's not coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. Right, right. Yeah, it's part of culture now. So that's what I imagine a lot of movies and shows are going to be talking about is the pandemic right. and dealing with it and things of like that. Yeah. It's got to be, you know, it's, it's right. And, and, and it's got to be done right. Because I mean, the news, the news is our storytelling right now. And it's just, yeah. oh my God, wake me up right now. We're all woke up into a bad B grade science fiction, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like, <laughs> the plot's pretty, pretty pathetic. You know, but, but there it is. Wow. You know, so. Right, so before we like, you know, wrap up, um, we had a couple nerd questions. Go, go, go. Right. So, um, one of the one I'm interested in is if you had the choice right now to direct <laughs> superhero movie any superhero team comic book whatever whatever genre you want to get it from who would you pick you got full budget whatever you want any actor you can have 
what's your movie you're going after? What character do you like? Who do you find the most? Oh gosh. Oh, okay. So I gotta tell you, um, there's 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 two things. And it's just, you know, I'm sorry, it's just so overly, overly, overly done. Hmm. But I was, when I was, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, I had the first 100 Spider-Mans. And I just feel like they got super close, but they never got it right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many times can we see the Spider-Man origin over and over and over again? Yeah, yeah. You know, there, is, there is that. Um, Daredevil, you know, Daredevil was beautiful, though. See, so, I mean, I, can I do better than those guys? I, 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 don't, I don't know about that, but I'll tell you what I would do. And what's unmade out there, and the, and the one that's missing from the, the lore is a really good Fantastic Four. Oh yeah, yeah. They, they yeah. haven't done it. No, they can't get it right. Right, and I honestly, a lot of people didn't like Jessica Alba. I mean, but I just like Jessica Alba, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know that that counts. You know, dye her hair blonde and put her in a movie, and I'm fine. With that. <laughs> yeah. But but they just haven't gotten it right. They just haven't done the Fantastic Four yet. And, I think and I what's like missing in all that is, is the is the family aspect. Fantastic Four is a family before right. it's a superhero team. So that's right, and, 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 and it became too the the even the good the good one if you want to call it that, they were schmarmy and they were distant, and I didn't believe these actors knew each other, and and they felt like they were all in their own little world. Although it wasn't, the effects were good in the in the the very first one, but and then in the last one that was done, what was really missing, and I mean I saw it instantly as a director, is there wasn't close shots of the people's reactions to things. Yeah, You know, there just wasn't, a, you know, one of the way that as much as a complaint as you might have about Michael Bay with his uh, Transformers movies, and I get lost in the end of them. It's just giant junkyards throwing themselves at each other in a, in a hurricane. <laughs> and I don't know what the hell's going on. It's just metal parts <laughs> flying and all this. But he knows he's smart mm -hmm. enough to cut away to the main lead guy going yeah. and to show their face <laughs> and to show how they feel about it. And that, that, right. That, right, and that last Fantastic Four movie, it missed that. It missed their yeah. cut to the reactions of the people, for God's sakes. It was us not on. And Singh didn't have any pants on, which is my <laughs> thing. I could never get over. He didn't there have any go. pants on, and no one seemed to mind. <laughs> and then also, um, I would love to do anything Star Trek. Yeah. And yeah. I actually, I'm going to blow this because now they're, you know, I, I, the likelihood of me getting that done is that I've had a script lying around for years where um, Gene Roddenberry was actually. Uh, was one of the people assigned to reveal that there are aliens to the human race. Oh, wow. And Star oh. Trek was actually just to introduce people to the fact that the <laughs> world is working with aliens. And it actually, then when they got, and I'm in my script is that they got, they made the sets look too much like the real aliens. And then the actual aliens came in and go, no, no, it has to be more cardboard looking. And they made them dumb it down. And the only, the fun part about my script is that Leonard Nimoy, is actually a 200-year-old Vulcan pretending to be a human, pretending to be a Vulcan. <laughs> He's a character that's actually a Vulcan living here on Earth, and he had sharp ears that he had to clip round, and then they have to prosthetic put ears on him like his original ears were. Oh. It drives him nuts, and he's like this, you know, so I've got some really fun stuff, and, and you know, hopefully, hopefully we could pull that off and, and then show how it eventually became the series that it did, but then we started to introduce people to aliens too quickly. So right at the height of the series, they had to cancel it. Because uh, people were believing too fast and they don't want to introduce it that quickly because, you know, world religions will make us all go insane, apparently, if we reveal that we have UFOs that we're working with, which... Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. That would be really entertaining. Yeah, yeah. So now that I've handed that over to Hollywood, they can go steal yeah. that idea. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, um, you, you know, one quick thing you might want... I'm sorry. ...character as a kid. Like, who did you, who, who did you like the most? You said you used to read comics and buy. Like, who were some of your favorites? 
Well, again, it was uh, Spider-Man and then Daredevil kind of intersected with Spider-Man. So I was the original, you know, the superhero group. But actually, because I was young enough, those old golden age comics that are worth thousands and thousands of dollars now, mm -hmm. there was like, I don't know, was he called Candleman? And there was like the Spectre. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys yeah. know who that yeah. is. And there were these... I'm the JSA guy. I know all about the Spectre. Yeah, and, and I, had a, I had a ton of the EC comics. So I was really into those horror, the body coming back from the dead. And they were all little Twilight Zones where the guy wished mm -hmm. that he was the richest person on earth. And then the genie makes him the richest person on earth and then he'd wake up. Or no, the richest person on the planet. Yeah. But he didn't say what planet. Uh, and so then they yeah. moved into it, you know, like stuff like that. I used to love that. But I had a lot of the EC horror and like what Mad Magazine was back then, which was these intricate little black and white drawings of, you know, of like scary things that like swamp creature coming out of the darkness and, and that kind of stuff. But, um, but I was straight up superhero and it was mostly, um, you know, Stanley was like my dad, you know, even though my dad was my dad, but his way of dealing with bullies was teaching me how to punch somebody and knock them out in one punch. Or mm -hmm. how often do you get to do that in school when somebody's, you know, throwing <laughs> yeah. a milkshake on your face, you can't punch him and knock him out. Yeah. And so Stanley showed us how to sort of be, that it was okay that we were these these kids and i got one thing for you that side note mike rockowitz when i met him the first thing i asked him was please get me to please introduce me to steve ditko i'll do anything on the planet i'll give you anything you can have my first child anything i want to meet steve ditko and he said well you know he's an eccentric guy he keeps to himself and blah 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 and I guess I fed Mike enough stuff that he believed that Steve would listen to me. So he, this is the weird thing of life and how life works out. And so he, he, he set up a meeting between me and Steve Ditko. Okay. And, and, uh, and so we were set up to meet on Thursday. I was super excited and everything. And then I said, what happened? He didn't call. And Mike said, um, no, he didn't call me back. I don't know what was going on. And that was the Thursday that he died. Was the day uh, he died. Oh, jeez. And I, Man. I just, how weird can life be? Like, that's where you think, like, the Matrix, where you're going to see the black cat go through twice. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> but, but, and, and the fact that he was willing to meet with me, I guess I had convinced him that I wasn't going to be an irritating fan. Yeah. You know, blah, blah, blah. And I, I had <laughs> brushed up on Anne Rind, you know, so to talk about all of those things that he was into, you know. <laughs> you know but it just, it wasn't, that's life. It wasn't meant yeah. to be, you know, so, but, but those things happen. Wow. And, um, and lastly, you guys, I did a really shitty version of War of the Worlds for one reason. Um, okay. I wasn't finished with it. And I had a lot of people who were like, I was one of the original cyberbullied people. I had like 60, 70,000 blogs a week where people were writing negative things about me before my movie came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there was a lot of, you know, Jeff Wayne's people over here with their musical version and Spielberg wanted to do a version and Spielberg's people uh, met up with me in Las Vegas and told me, I don't want to say like mafia guys, because Spielberg's not mafia, but they said, don't do this kid. You don't know who you're going up against and all the people that want to do it. And Tom Cruise wants to make this and Tom Cruise does what Tom Cruise wants to do. And so I just foolishly said, I just foolishly said to them, I don't have anything. What are you going to do? Take away my nothing. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? I mean, like I'm a nobody. I mean, the worst you could do is accidentally make me famous, which they did. And that's exactly what happened is that I went out and I made my crappy little version. And eventually, cause we couldn't get the big version done. And while we were editing it, a company called UAV bought it from me and convinced me to share my three hour rough cut with them where we had 18 more weeks of editing to do. Mm -hmm. And the next few days they distributed it to Walmart while we were still working on it. And I intended it to be a hundred minute movie. <laughs> and suddenly my three hour version with multiple takes and animatics for special effects is out there. 
and I had to keep my mouth shut because to be honest, you know, it, it, it sold 7 million DVDs. Oh, wow. And we had to, I had to be quiet and not really tell people that that's my rough cut out there. This is the worst day on earth for me. And I was being called Ed Wood, which I kind of, based on that movie, I deserved. Yeah. So eventually I was able to sue that company and get my rights back. And then I recut it into the film, which if you guys have seen it, it's War of the Worlds, The True Story. And it's done as if uh, War of the Worlds was a documentary. And we all know that there was a war between Earth and Mars a uh, hundred years ago. And I did it like a straight up war documentary, like World yeah. at War or Victory at Sea. And, yeah. uh, you know, and it's fast and it's good. And I took uh, all the public domain footage that ever existed up until like the 1950s even. And with an attorney, so we did it right. I have like 300 movie stars in the film out of character playing extras. Mm. Oh, and, okay. the, wow. and the conceit was we could have uh, Lawrence Olivier and Jack Nicholson and, uh, and Elizabeth Taylor as long as I don't market the film on them. Yeah, okay. Just begin, because the footage is public domain and just because they're in it. So like I have a scene when the narrator, who's Jim Sissel, who does a ton of History Channel narrations for war documentaries, and he's doing a line where he goes, and all the people of London were opening their doors and windows to see what all the commotion was. And here I show a shot of Shirley Temple with her maid opening up a door. <laughs> and it's so, it's so fun, you know? So you see everybody is in the movie. I mean, literally, even William Shatner's in the movie. And his people thought it was funny because it was his one public domain movie that he did in Esperanza. <laughs> and, uh, so nobody saw that. And they let it fall into public domain. And, uh, I, I, and we did, uh, we played it across the United States. You know, we competed in the Academy Awards with us. Uh, we've gotten, you know, straight up good reviews and it's still out there selling like hotcakes. And I'm happy about that. I'm happy with this version. So that's what I stand by. But I'll tell you one funny, one funny story. Coming out of a theater where we had 2,500 people showed up, giant screen, uh, a 45 foot screen with a 250 foot throw of the, of the projection. And that was my, my dream come true with a filled audience who were all, you know, steampunk fans, Star Trek fans, War of the Worlds fans, comic book fans. It was a convention in and of itself. And afterwards, this literally this 90 year old woman on the arm of one of her steampunk young friends, you know, nephews comes out and she goes, excuse me, was that? Because I was up there answering questions and stuff. And she says, was that Shirley Temple I saw in the movie? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and she didn't get it. And I said, yes, that was Shirley Temple. And I said, the hard part was, you know, getting her to look six years old again. And she just didn't get my joke. She didn't get my joke. And she was like, blink, blink. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, I tell you what, this has been very, very informative talk. This was really, really interesting. It's been um, awesome. It's really awesome. Guys. But all the other stories, um, Let's just say to Chrome again, streaming yes. on Prime, Apple TV, Netflix, most of that platforms, May 30th, this Saturday. Get up at 3 a.m. in the morning. You got it. <laughs> watch it. Yeah, we run whenever, but you know, that's the whole good thing about streaming. You know, you get to go to the bathroom in the middle, have pizza, then come back. <laughs> yeah. You know, so absolutely. All anything right. Well, this has been wonderful. You're about to, to uh, you know, plug anything, anything you'd like to plug at the end? Uh, I want to plug Natasha for all of her great work that she's done in the film and, and how she's doing. Dave Morrissey, who plays Noel, is fantastic. Anthony Piana is one of the darkest, most sadistic, scariest people on earth in Chrome. Mm -hmm. And in real life, he's a super, super, super nice guy, pussycat, you know, really, really good. Uh, of course, my partner, Susan, my partner, Donovan, Donovan Lee, um, who I haven't even mentioned in this, who plays like 400 different characters because he was one of the principal stunt players in the film. <laughs> and you'll just see him everywhere with a mask on, always doing the different characters. And, and he plays a character named Viper in the film as well. 
Um, but uh, no, that's that's pretty much it. You know, Charlie Boy is going to be coming out uh, next year. We were about to get a good theatrical release with it when pandemic hit. Mm. And we'll, we'll have to kind of see with, with that. And I got Kelly LeBrock and, uh, and a joy to direct uh, Burt Young, who played Polly in uh, the Rocky, yeah. uh, the Rocky movies. He was uh, Rocky's brother. Kelly LeBrock, weird science, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, Kelly LeBrock is one of my good friends. I spent time with her out on her 200-acre ranch. I think she was my first crush as a, as a young... As a... <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what? Even, even at her, she's mature now. But even then, I have to tell you, you know, I don't know how to say this nicely on camera, but she still does it for me when I hang out with her. <laughs> and, um, but you know what's so weird? Because she's, she's not a small person. She's big. I mean, like, like a tall person. Yeah. And, and, you know, she's really tough. And the very first day I met her, I said, you know, she was talking about what life is like on her ranch. And she, she, she goes, well, you know, she knows I'm a meat eater, you know, and she said, I'm not, I'm not apologetic about it. And she goes, you know, I believe in that. And she goes, but, but, you know, she said, I'm very natural and I, I kill my own cattle. And I was just like, this is my very first meeting with Kelly LeBrock, you know, weird science with, wow. you know, hey boys. And I go, and I, and I actually, I'm so stupid. And I go, well, what's that like? And she goes, well, you have to grab it by the throat and you pull it down and then you have to cut its throat with a knife and then tip it into the, and I'm like, and I was like, my mind was popping because you're a supermodel. Yeah. Super, the, the, coin, the, the, the phrase supermodel was coined for Kelly LeBrock. Yeah. And here she is telling me how, she, how, you, how you basically <laughs> slid a cow's throat. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I was just, you know, blown away. And I'll tell you another time, guys, I'll tell you her Steven Seagal stories. Because you know, she was oh. married to him for years. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to hear those. Come back. No, absolutely. But, <laughs> thank you so much. And this has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. You guys are yes. amazing. The Fantastic Four. There you guys are. Oh. <laughs> the new Fantastic Four. Four things. That's what this is. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it. And right. uh, great talking to you. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks. All right, everyone, please check us out. Again, kfpodcast.com, at the KF Podcast and your social media needs. And thanks a lot, everyone. Have a great night. Have a great night.